Sometimes when we approach the scriptures, there are sections which are very difficult for us. And many find the book of Zechariah a mysterious book because of all the numbers of symbols and figures that are found in it. Uh, We are tonight going to finish our study of the Minor Prophets We're going to study the book of Zechariah, and uh, if you've read those 14 chapters, I would dare say that most of you have said, I'm not sure who the rider of the red horse is who's riding among the myrtle trees, and uh, I don't know that when you leave you're going to know who that man is, but I do believe that you can discern a lot of good from it. The previous lesson, which we studied two Sunday nights ago, was called the book of Zechariah, the aim and the angels. We talked about the aim of the book, the the intent, the purpose of it was to motivate and encourage the children of Judah, the return from the captivity, to get busy building the temple of the Lord. He, along with Haggai, excuse me, were given that task to motivate the people. We did look at two angels. There was the angel that spoke to Zechariah, who actually explained to him a number of the visions that we're going to look at. Then the other was the angel of the Lord, which is very important in our study of the Bible. This lesson will survey the book drawing attention to significant passages. We're not going to try to do, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, to unravel the rainbow. We're not going to try to to go to great depths to do a verse-by-verse study. This is going to be really a survey, but then we're going to focus on some important passages. And it will be an encouraging message for a broken people. You know, when I read the Bible, I try to put it in its historical context and its cultural context. When the children of Israel returned from the captivity, they were depressed. They were discouraged. You see, when they had left as a people, most of them have already died, just a few that are left. And they come and they see the foundation laid for the temple and they're crying. And what happens is the whole city is in destruction, just like after a tornado had come through and everybody was depressed and discouraged. Haggai was the man who was to try to say, the reason why things aren't getting better is because you're not putting out the effort. You're not working like God told you to work. He was being what we sometimes call the bad cop. But Zechariah had a different message. Zechariah was to say, you can do it because God is with you. As Paul would say in Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it is a book of encouragement for a broken people. We're going to look at three things. And if you want an outline of the book of Zechariah, here's the outline. Chapters 1 through 6, eight visions. Chapters 7 and 8, you have four messages, particularly as it relates to the fast. And then as you take chapters 9 through 14, there will be two messages, and particularly they are about the Messiah. Let's take that first section, these eight visions. And as we approach them, I want you to see them not as each one individually, but first of all, to see them as a group. The purpose of the visions was to reveal something. 
And what we often see when we see that is we see horse riders and we see uh, plumb lines and we see all these various things, but there's a message in them. And the message that we find is, is that God has a vision, use a play on words, a vision for his people. He sees an outcome. He sees where he wants them to be, not just where they are at the present. You know, sometimes you see some of these little children coming up from uh, the pew packers class. And I see some of these little boys just bouncing up through there with a smile on their face. I see them singing, and I think, one of these days I can see those little boys standing up here in this pulpit leading singing. Or I can see some of these little girls being so helpful leading these little boys by the hand. I can think, okay, there's going to be a, a real good wife who's going to tell her husband what to do. Y'all think I'm joking. <laughs> what the book of Zechariah is, is a message for the children of Judah to say, this is where God is leading you. This is where God is taking you. So let's look at them very briefly. First vision is a horseman among the myrtle trees. And it's not my purpose to go and look at the red horse and to look at the black horse and to look at the, you know, the dappled horse, all these different colors. You know, I'm sure that they had some sort of meaning. But when you start looking at it, what God says in the midst of it is look at verse 10. He says, And a man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. What it's happening is it's a picture of God's eyes. These are his eyes. And he sees what's going on in the world. God's not disinterested or uninterested. God cares about what's going on. God intends to respond. You remember that Jeremiah spoke about the 70 years of captivity, the 70 years of bondage. That's referenced in verse 12 of chapter 1. But God said, I'm going to respond with mercy. Look at verse 17 in this context. And again proclaim, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. For people who are discouraged, that's a message God said, you remember how this place used to be where my name was and my people? That's where it's going to be again. The second vision is that of four horns and four craftsmen. When you think of a horn, think of like a horn that might be on a ram. And they would take that horn and it had two different kinds of meanings. They would take and cut the horn off of the head of this ram and they would hollow it out and they would make it into a shofar. That's a trumpet. And they would sound horns. Sometimes the horn also referred to a symbol of strength and power and four horns represented those four nations or groups of nations that had scattered the children of Israel. And again, it's not my purpose to try to name them, whether it's Egypt or whether it's Babylon, whether it's Assyria. That's, again, not my purpose, but to point out to you, they had scattered God's people. But God raised up four craftsmen, and these craftsmen, their job was to 
terrify to demolish the horns. The thought in mind is, regardless of the symbols is, God said, I'm going to set things right. They tried to create problems. Now I'm going to set them straight. I'm going to raise up four craftsmen to take care of that. The third vision is a man with a measuring line. When you get to chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. And a measuring line is what we would call a tape measure today. And he's going to try to measure the city. In fact, if you'll notice with me, he's going to measure the city of Jerusalem. He's going to measure to see how many people are in it, where the walls need to be built. Because if you want to contain everybody in a city and the walls were there for protection, but you know, you've got a problem. And the problem is the city is growing so large because God is blessing it, there's too many people for a wall. Notice with me, if you will, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And he said, Run, speak to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock within it. It's, it's like you can't get a wall built because of the time you get it built, the city's already gone expanded further. But verse 5 is such a beautiful verse. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. God said, you know, you don't need a wall. I'm going to be the wall and provide a wall of protection round about them. Now, when you get to verse 13, I, I just, you know, I'm amazed about the way God presents this. He says, be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. God's taken notice. He's, he's aroused like you wake someone up and God says, okay, I'm going to handle this matter. The fourth vision was clean garments for the high priest. Joshua is now the high priest. And the picture is given that Joshua is wearing dirty garments. And why are they dirty? I think it's obviously representative of the sinfulness that had existed among the priesthood. And so what you're going to have is a symbol of purification. He's taking off the old dirty garments, ready to put on clean, pure garments, so he can preside over the offering of sacrifices. But let me point out to you, I titled this lesson, Behold the Branch. And here's where we get the glimpse of the priesthood. And it's looking forward to one called the branch. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, Everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Oh, there's so much meaning in that. You know who the branch is. The branch is Jesus Christ. We'll observe that when we get to chapter 6. 
But I want you to notice that in one day, God is going to deal with the iniquity, the sinfulness of all the people. Do you realize that when Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood, that one day is so important in the history of man. Oh, the day is important that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, but there's no, no day more important than the death of Jesus Christ when he shed his blood for the sins of mankind. Vision number five is a lampstand with olive trees on either side. When you think of this lampstand in chapter four, I want you to think of the Jewish menorah. You know, you've got a, a center and then you've got a little loop. You've got another loop and then you've got another loop. And that represents where you end up with the 12 tribes of Israel. And But there's a picture that there's two olive trees, one on either side, right and left. And what's happening is olive oil is flowing from those olive trees to keep that lampstand supplied with oil, keeping the lights burning. And this was representative of the fact that the temple would be completed, completed by Zerubbabel. And the light of God's presence was illuminated by two anointed ones. You see, olive oil was not just for the lighting of lamps. Olive oil was used to anoint the head of the high priest and the head of the king. And you will have the representative of the king and the priest in this. The sixth vision is that of a flying scroll. And that's found in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And what you have to visualize in your mind is like a flowing banner with a message on it. Perhaps some of you have been to the Gulf Coast. There'll be a, a plane fly by, and it'll say, you know, uh, tonight, shrimp half price at this local eating establishment. That banner that flies behind it is sometimes very huge. The banner that's described here is 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Big banner. And it's meant to be read. It has a message on it. And the message is doomed to the thieves and the liars. God wants them to recognize that his blessings is going to be to take the bad people out from among them. You know, we got in a bad situation when all these wicked people were among us and God wants them to see I'm getting rid of them. That brings us to vision number seven. And there's a picture of a basket. And you open up the basket, what's inside? There's a woman inside of the basket. There's a lead lid to it. Who is this woman that is in there? She personified sinfulness or wickedness. You open it up and you see a wicked woman in there. What do you do? You slam the basket shut. And then comes along this bird. And the bird picks the basket up and the bird carries the basket to Babylon. We're going to get rid of sinfulness. We're going to send it back where it came. We're going to send it back to Babylon. Finally, the eighth vision. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Four chariots. One coming from the north, south, east, and west. The four corners of the earth. God's providential protection for his people. 
It doesn't matter which direction you turn, there's someone there provided from God. And what picture is focused is upon the branch. The branch. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Brother Norman just read us that. Speak to him, saying, Thus says Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is Branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now pause for a moment. Zerubbabel is rebuilding the old temple, but the real temple, the church, is going to be built by the branch. Oh, you do remember Matthew 16, verse 18, and Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Priest and king. The anointed one. He's going to be a priest. Not on earth. Hebrews chapter 8. But he's going to be a priest on his throne. Which throne is in heaven. A priest and a king. For just a moment, let me remind you of what you find in Isaiah chapter 11 and Jeremiah. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jeremiah 23 verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Chapter 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Folks, it ought to be apparent that the branch is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's chapters 1 through 6. Eight visions focusing us upon the future, not just upon the immediate future, but upon the future in which the Lord will bring the Savior into the world. But now let's return to the present. They come back to the land and they've got a question. A sincere question found in chapter 7, verse 3. And to ask the priest who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophet saying, Should I weep in the fifth and the fast as I have done, fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Should I keep fasting? You've got a good message. Should I, should I keep fasting? Well, let me point out to you that fasting, in contrast to feast, exhibits mourning and sadness and grief. Those 70 years while they were in captivity, they fasted because they were suffering the punishment for their sins. I'll point out to you 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, David's child is very near death. And what does David do? According to that passage, he fasted, he wept, he wouldn't get up and eat. Now that the situation has changed here, God's blessings is promised, should we fast? Well, God has four specific messages to answer that question. The first one was, is 
that of hypocrisy. In fact, there's a question. During those 70 years, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, he said, did you really fast for me? For me? God is asking, when you did that, were you feeling sorry for yourselves? Or were you sorry because you had sinned against me? Now, folks, that's a significant difference. Here's a man who goes out and gets drunk and he has an accident and he kills somebody. And all does he hang his head in grief and he's sad because he realizes what he's done. Here's another man who goes out and gets drunk. He's in an accident and he's sad because he's gotten caught. He's going to have to pay the consequences of that. And God is asking the question, for whom did you do that? Verse 6, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets? In other words, God's saying, shouldn't you have recognized why you were doing? It's a message of hypocrisy. Second is a message of repentance. Verses 9 through 12 he tells him, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his neighbor. Verse 11, they refused to heed. They shrugged their shoulders, stropped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord had spoken. And he had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. He's trying to say, what God was trying to teach you was to repent, to change. The third message is that of restoration. Oh, yes, God's going to bless. He said, old men and old women shall sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand because of his great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Oh, do you hear the laughter? The joy that's going on. Do you see the old man sitting there with his cane? He's lived to a good old age. God said things are going to get better. Should we fast? Well, no. Things are going to get him better. And then what I really enjoy is verses 19 and 23. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Verse 23, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God is trying to give them four messages that says it's going to be so well for you that people are going to say, hey, we want to go with you. Things are going so well. Which leads me to the final part, and that is the two burdens. Chapters 9 through 14 is about the Messiah. Some of it's very sad. Some of it reflects, first of all, the rejection of the Messiah. Isn't that strange that God had a plan to provide all of this blessing for them and people are going to say, we don't want him? Just like Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, 
a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We didn't want to see him. You go to Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Oh, you know what that is. Matthew 21, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. How on that Sunday before he would be crucified on Friday... He's going to be riding in this donkey and people are going to be putting palm branches in front of him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then that Friday they're going to crucify him. Or you go to chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. If not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter and that the princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. And you say, oh, I know what that is. That's when Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then once he recognized that he had made such a tremendous mistake, he brings the money back, he throws it down into the house of the Lord. They take it and say, well, you know, we can't take this. This is blood money. And they buy with it a field called the potter's field. You find that in Matthew 26, verse 15, Matthew 27, verses 7 and 8. They consulted together and bought the potter's field to bury strangers in it. Therefore, it's been called the field of blood today. But you see, there is also the reign of the Messiah. I recognize that you have two different burdens. And the word burden simply means an oracle, a message, something heavy that God has given the prophet to deliver. And the second one is reflected in chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look to me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him and grieves as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. John 19.37 says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Oh yes, they pierced the hands of Jesus. They pierced his feet. And the soldier pierced his side. And then you come to chapter 13. And boy, what a wonderful place to find an end at. You go to chapter 13 and verse 1 and this is found in so many of our songs. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sins and for uncleanness. There's a fountain open. There's a fountain free. It is for you and me. Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9. And in that day there shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both the summer and the winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. Do you see the picture of the fountain of living waters? Does that not remind you of John 4? Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, He asked her for water. 
And then he says, if you knew who it was that was talking with you, you would say, give me a drink, verse 10. And says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's thinking of the water of the well, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Oh, that's what Zechariah was talking about. The fountain of living waters that washes away sin. Jesus is that great fountain. You know what I see as I look at this? Zechariah focused on the future. He focused not just on the immediate future, he focused on the distant future. And God had a plan, and he was revealing it in all these figures, all these pictures, to try to stir up their minds. And God was looking forward for a greater kingdom led by a kingly priest. Oh, don't you appreciate Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who was both a king and a priest. And don't you appreciate that God not only had a plan to deal with their immediate needs, but God dealt with man's greatest need and that is his sin problem. Since the very beginning of time, man has struggled with sin in his life. And God has prepared a plan to deal with that sin and the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Behold the branch, the son of the living God. Tonight, if you need to be obedient to the gospel, we urge you, because of your faith in Christ, repent of those sins that you have, confess that faith, and then be baptized for the remission of of your sins. And if you are a child of God, don't be like the children of Judah. Don't have to be told many times to change your life, to change your ways. Respond to the God of heaven. Follow his son Jesus and make things right in your life. Would you come while we stand and sing?